everyone. Welcome to our afternoon seminar, and I believe it's around that time for us to get started. Again, welcome. Um, joy to be with you here at such a beautiful campsite. It's the first time that I've been up here to uh, Lake Tahoe Camp Meeting, and it's just a beautiful spot. Wonderful. Just arrived a few moments ago. I didn't realize there was so much construction coming in from Highway 80. Maybe some of you came the same way, and Long delays. I was a little worried whether I was going to make it here on time, but be glad we're finally here. And it's just a joy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Money at work. They're doing a lot of construction there for sure. Um, my name is John Ross. I am uh, Vice President of Evangelism for Amazing Facts Ministries, also teaching the AFCO program there. AFCO is the Amazing Facts Center of Evangelism. It's just a real joy to be able to be with you. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to be here the whole time for camp meeting. I'll be here for the next three days for this seminar in the afternoon at 2 o'clock. And then uh, due to prior commitments, I won't be able to be here for the evening. Uh, oh, not the evening, the weekend presentation. But it sounds as though you've got some great speakers coming and some great time for study. And again, just a, a wonderful joy to be with you. Uh, just a couple of announcements, and then we'll get started with our study for this afternoon. What I'll be doing for the next three presentations, we'll be looking at some specific prophecies in the book of Revelation. Now, previously, according to the notes, I was going to be talking about the three angels' messages and spending our time in Revelation chapter 14, but I understand I got a, a call earlier. Uh, the evening presentations are going to be focused on the three angels' messages. So we figured, well, we won't do the three angels' messages in the afternoon. I think you're going to get plenty of that in the evening presentation. So what I wanted to do is give you an overview of some key prophecies that we find in the book of Revelation, in particular those that I think relate to Adventists. For example, Revelation 10, Revelation 11, yes. Oh, he was. Of, of the three angels' messages. Okay. <laughs> well, I appreciate you filling me in. We can do the 144,000. That's what it says. I just didn't want to duplicate what he was going to be doing in the evening. So um, if that's what he's planning on doing, then yeah, we'll take a look at Revelation 14, at least the first few verses, and we'll take a look at Revelation 7. Now, I do have some notes, and I wish I could just provide this for free, but um, these are amazing facts. These are actually the notes or the syllabi that I use for the AFCO class. And it's sort of a commentary on the whole book of Revelation. So if you're interested in this, I'm going to be referring to this during our study. Uh, it's $10 a book if you'd like to get one. You can. I have a box here. This is all I brought. So um, I actually am going to be going back to Sacramento later on. So if somebody wants it, you're free to do so. Uh, you can just give me $10 or you can make a check out to Amazing Facts. Either way, but you'll have the notes serving as a commentary as we go through our study uh, during our time together. All right, well, with all of that, I think it's time for us to have a word of prayer, and uh, then we can begin with our study. What you'll need for this afternoon session is your Bible, and you might want to take some notes if you're so inclined. Uh, if you'd like to get the notes, that'll probably be helpful as we study together. But it's one of my favorite subjects that we're going to be looking at uh, in Revelation, and uh, also more specifically the 144,000, at least today. And we'll be looking at some other aspects of the message in the next coming presentation. So with that, let's just bow our heads and we'll have a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, once again, we are so grateful for an opportunity to gather together and study your word, especially these prophecies in the book of Revelation. 
And we pray for the Holy Spirit to come and give us understanding. We recognize that the Bible is your book. And in order for us to correctly understand it, we need the leading of the Holy Spirit. So we invite the Holy Spirit to come and guide our hearts and our minds and impress upon us those things that you would want us to know. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you have your uh, Bibles with you, I encourage you to open to Revelation chapter 14 is where we're going to start. And based on the uh, program, today we're going to be talking about the 144,000. All right. Now, you'll find reference to the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 14. It's the first few verses. We're going to be looking at that today. And then another famous passage dealing with the 144,000 is, of course, Revelation chapter 7. So we're going to be taking a look at that as well today, depending upon how much time we have. So let's begin in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So the first thing that John sees here in Revelation chapter 14, before you even get to the three angels' message, a picture of the 144,000. And according to the verse, who are they standing with, and where are they standing? What does verse 1 say? They're standing on Mount Zion, and who are they standing with? They're standing with a lamb, and of course the lamb is a symbol of Christ. What is Mount Zion a symbol of? Mount Zion would be the dwelling place of God. It is a symbol of heaven, or the home of the redeemed, especially in this context. Something else interesting about this verse. So here in in Revelation chapter 1, the first few verses, you have a picture of the 144,000. We're going to get to them in a little more detail. But they're seen victorious. They're standing with the Lamb. They're standing with Jesus. The word there in the Greek for standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, it's not a passive sort of just standing and waiting. But it is a triumphant standing. It is a victorious standing. It's those who stand for truth, those who stand in resistance of evil. So it's an active kind of standing, not a passive kind of standing. So here you see the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, standing victorious, symbol of Jesus, and with them the 144,000 who have also stood faithful with Jesus here on the earth, and now they are described as standing with Jesus victorious in heaven. Now, I want to couple this verse with what we find in Revelation chapter 6, the last verse of Revelation chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at a question that's asked. Revelation chapter 6, the last few verses, talks about the opening of the sixth seal. The sixth seal, beginning in verse 12, describes the second coming of Jesus. Let me just start in verse 12. 12. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. Then I looked, and he opened up the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. We recognize that at the end of the 1260 years of papal supremacy, which ended in 1798, these signs met their fulfillment. So you have the dark day, you have the stars falling in 1830, 1833, uh, you also have the Lisbon earthquake. So these signs have a historical application. However, some feel that they might be, and I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that right at the coming of Christ, there's going to be another great earthquake that takes place when Jesus comes. 
Matter of fact, it's that earthquake that opens the graves of the redeemed and they come forth. They are resurrected. Now look at verse 13. It says, And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree when it drops its figs. That found a fulfillment November 13, 1833. And actually, Ellen White gives an account. She was young at the time, but she gives an account of that event, the falling of the stars. And then verse 14 says, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up together, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. So when it talks about the sky receding as a scroll, that's really talking about the second coming of Jesus. Notice there's also an earthquake that takes place when Jesus comes again. Verse 15 says, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the commanders and the mighty men and every free man hid themselves Every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So here Jesus is again described as the Lamb. And here is a picture of the second coming. And the wicked are turning to the rocks and the mountains saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then notice the question that's asked in verse 17. Yes. Yes, these are notes on the book of Revelation. Yes, absolutely. If anybody would like them, I wish I could just give them away. But there is a cost. It's $10 for that. And if you'd like to grab it, please do. Welcome to take it now and follow along if you'd want. And you can just... It's $10. And I only have 36 so come on up and get it. And I'll have more hopefully next time. And you can, you can take care of the finance later on. You've got two, and you've got one here. Thank you. There's two. Okay, thank you. I think somebody... Okay, there we go. Thank you. Thanks. All right, you made two amazing facts. Thank you. And I'll give you my No problem. Do you need change? No, I got two. You got two, okay. All right, thank you so much. Did you need two, or you wanted one? I got two. You got two. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Two over there. And what do we have there? Okay. Yes, thank you. Did you get one? You got one? All right, thank you. Okay, no problem. No problem. Sure, absolutely. Did your sister get one? Okay. One more. All right, absolutely. There we go. We already had Okay, you got one. Did you need another one or you need change? Uh, I'll need change. Here. I'll need change here. There we go. Thank you. There we go. All right, did you get yours? Oh, no. Okay. All right, thank you. Well, that went quick. We got three left. If anybody wanted to get some before it's over, we'll have some more if need be. Did you get did you get one? A ten. Ten dollars. These are the ones left. Did you need one? I just want to pay for it. Okay. You need change. All right, there we go.
Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, that was quick. We appreciate that. If uh, you want to turn to page 21 in the notes, I'll be jumping around a little bit. Page 21. Page 21 right now. And I'm looking at verse 17 of Revelation chapter 6. 21. Page. Oh, no problem. Page 21 in the notes. And it's Revelation 6.17 is the, is the scripture reference there, if you'd like that. Yeah. Thank you. So, Revelation chapter 6, just to quickly summarize what we're looking at, it describes the second coming of Jesus. And the wicked turn to the rocks and the mountains that they say, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and then a question is asked. Now, I want you to note the question that's asked. Verse 17 for the great day of his wrath has come. And what's the question? Who shall be able to stand? So this brings us right up to the second coming. And the question is, who's able to stand when Jesus comes? Now, did you notice in Revelation chapter 14, it begins by describing the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. So we know the Lamb obviously can stand, because it's the second coming of Jesus. But who else can stand when Jesus comes? The 144,000. So the question he's asked here in chapter 6, verse 17, who's able to stand? Revelation 7 answers the question. Revelation 14 shows those who stood with Jesus. Now they're standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. They are standing victorious. Does that make sense? So the 144,000 describes God's people at the end of time who are able to stand on the earth when Jesus comes, and they're also going to stand with Jesus victoriously on Mount Zion. Well, let's go back to Revelation 14 and learn a few more characteristics of those who are able to stand when Jesus comes. We'll come back to Revelation 7 a little later. Revelation 14 now and verse 2. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 2. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harp. Now it's interesting to note that John describes 38 times in the book of Revelation what he hears, and 78 times what he sees. In other words, Revelation is an eyewitness account. John is carried away in vision, and he describes the things that he sees, the things that he hears. Matter of fact, on a side note, Revelation chapter 1 1 says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom God gave to him. Jesus gave it to an angel, and the angel gave it to John. So there is a sequence described in Revelation chapter 1. God the Father is the fountainhead of all truth. This truth then is conveyed by Jesus, by an angel, to John. And then it says concerning John, who bore record of the word of God and of the things that he saw and of the testimony of Jesus. So the book of Revelation is an eyewitness account of what the prophet saw in vision, what he heard, and what the Spirit of God revealed to him or the testimony of Jesus. Something else interesting to note about Revelation 1.1 as it talks about this book being an eyewitness account, it says it's the revelation of Jesus. Now, that phrase can be understood two ways. On the one hand, it's Jesus revealing something. Are you with me? It's the revelation of Jesus. Jesus is the one doing the revealing. 
But on the other hand, it could also be understood that it's the revelation of Jesus, meaning that which is being revealed is Jesus. You understand? And I think both are correct when it comes to the book of Revelation. The word they're revealing or revelation is, carries with it the idea of opening the lid on a basket or a pot for the purpose of revealing the contents. So this is the revelation of Jesus. In essence, it is Jesus lifting the lid and revealing himself. Does that make sense? So revelation is revealing Jesus. Here in Revelation chapter 14, the first few verses, we see Jesus revealed. He is the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, but there's somebody else revealed with the Lamb. And that's those who have stood with Jesus on the earth, the 144,000. So verse 2 talks about this voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. Often that voice is described or associated with God. Uh, the thunder is often connected also in Scripture with the presence of God. And then verse 3 says, And they sang, as it were, the song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000. Notice the next part, who were redeemed from the earth. So the 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion begin to sing. And the song that they sing, nobody else can sing. The 24 elders, the four living creatures, everybody else who is resurrected at the time of the second coming, they don't sing that song, but the 144,000 sing that song. What is the song? What does it say over here in verse 3? It's the song of who? Moses, and it's the song of the, of the Lamb. So we're going to talk about that, what that song is in just a moment. Um, it mentions here, though, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Who are the four living creatures and where are they described? Ezekiel refers to them. So you can go to the Old Testament and you get a cross-reference. Some have mentioned angels, yes. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, in particular chapter 4, describes the 144,000. And uh, let me just give you a quick overview. Uh, not the 144,000, but the four living creatures, I should say. Let me just give you a quick overview of the four living creatures. Revelation chapter 4 describes God the Father seated upon his throne. And uh, his, he looks, or the color is that similar to an emerald. There is a rainbow surrounding God's throne. And then there are the four living creatures which sort of make up God's throne. they surrounding the throne. There are seven burning lamps before the throne, symbolizing the seven spirits of God or seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And then there are the 24 elders. So this is the picture that's painted in Revelation chapter 4. Now the four living creatures, each one has a different description. The first is likened to a lion or he has the face likened to a lion. The second has a face like unto an ox or a calf. The third has a face likened unto a man. And the fourth has a face likened unto, can anybody tell me what the last one is? An eagle, a flying eagle. So what is the face of the first? A lion. What is the face of the second? It is a calf or an ox. What is the face of the third? A man. And the face of the fourth? An eagle. Now what do these four living creatures represent? Well, some have suggested that maybe they can represent the description given in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, different aspects of Christ being revealed. And yes, maybe there's something to that. But I think there's more. 
When you think of a lion, what do you think of? You think of strength, you think of power. Who is referred to as the king of the beasts? The lion. So some have described this first creature described as a lion. It could represent Jesus prior to the incarnation. So before Jesus came to the earth, he was the lion. He was powerful. He was a king. He was a ruler. Now when you look at the ox, what was an ox used for or a calf during Old Testament times? It was a beast of burden. It would bear burdens. It was also used for what? With reference to the sanctuary. Sacrifice. So an ox, the priest could, yep, they would sacrifice an ox. And there were times when kings would sacrifice oxen. So it was a beast of burden. It was also used as a sacrifice. Some have seen in that a description of the carnation where Jesus came to this earth and he laid down his royal scepter and he came to bear our sins and to die in our place. The third living creature has the face of a man. Now when Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended up to heaven, what is Jesus doing for us now in heaven? He is interceding as our... What is his function there? He is considered our high priest. So he represents us before the Father. And some see in the face of a man a symbol of Christ, our older brother, our high priest, representing us before the Father. And the fourth living creature has a face as an eagle. An eagle in the Old Testament is sometimes used to describe coming judgment. Nations that would come up against Israel and bring judgment. An eagle represents a speed, it can also represent judgment that comes. You'll recall uh, when reference to the kingdom of Babylon in Daniel 7, the lion had two wings as an eagle. The leopard had four wings representing speed. So some have seen in the eagle a picture of Jesus coming the second time as king of kings and lord of lords, coming to execute judgment. And indeed, judgment comes quickly upon the wicked. So the face of a lion can represent Christ prior to the incarnation. The ox symbolizes Christ during the incarnation. And the man representing Jesus as our high priest in heaven and the eagle representing the second coming or judgment that comes. So we have the four living creatures surrounding the throne. Now, what about the 24 elders? Who are the 24 elders? Just real quick, there are two principally, principal interpretations as to who the 24 elders are. I'll tell you which one I like in just a minute. But the one is identified as being possibly those who were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection. You've probably read the scripture that says when Jesus rose or died and rose, the graves of many of those who slept opened and they came out and they appeared in the holy city. So there was a resurrection that took place. We don't know who was in that resurrection. Maybe some of the great Old Testament prophets. Well, we know Moses was resurrected and taken to heaven because he appeared with Elijah. He was, he was resurrected earlier, according to the book of Jude. But there were others that were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection. We don't know who they, they are, but they would be the first fruits. Uh, but then there's nothing further said about this group in the book of Acts. You'd think if they rose from the dead and then they would interact with the church, you would have heard something about these people in the book of Acts, but you don't hear anything. So it's, uh, there's plenty of biblical evidence to support that when Christ ascended to heaven, those who were resurrected in that special resurrection went up with Jesus and they were first fruits. So some have suggested, well, maybe that could be who the 24 elders are. Maybe. 
But there's another suggestion, one that I like, and that is that the 24 elders can represent or be the representatives of the unfallen worlds. You remember in the book of, of uh, Job, it speaks about the sons of God appearing before God and Satan came representing earth. And God said, where did you come from? Oh, walking up and down upon the earth. And then God said, have you considered my servant Job? Also, the book of Job speaks about the stars singing for joy at the creation. And some have identified as maybe that being the sons of God or these representatives of these unfallen worlds. And so the other suggestion is that the 24 elders could represent, uh, be the representatives of the unfallen worlds. Now, there is a beautiful statement that you find in the book Desire of Ages where Ellen White describes the ascension of Jesus. And she almost gives an account of what you read in Revelation chapter 4. She describes the throne where the Father is seated. She describes the four living creatures. And then she says the representatives of the unfallen worlds are all present waiting to welcome Jesus. She then describes Jesus ascending up to heaven and she says in his train are those who were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection. Are you with me? So if those resurrected are following Jesus into heaven at the time of his ascension, but according to Revelation chapter 4, before Jesus gets to heaven, there is a picture of the 24 elders seated around the throne. It would make sense that the 24 elders then would be the representatives of these unfallen worlds. Does that make sense to everybody? So if you couple that with what you read in Desire of Ages, Revelation 4 and 5, the suggestion then would be that the 24 elders are the representatives of the unfallen worlds. Yes. Um, you know what? I wonder if I even have that quote in here. Let me just see if I do. It is the ascension of Christ. It's probably the last chapter to my father and to your father. So I would, uh, I don't have the page number in there. I'm sorry, it's not in the notes. Some of the stuff I share with you, I'm just going to kind of pull from different places. We kind of bounce around a little bit. So, but I would look in that chapter, the ascension of Christ. It'll probably be there. Um, the other question that's often asked, and I'm giving you a lot of information here, so hopefully you can follow along. Uh, another question that's often asked is, especially to Adventists, they say, you know, the Bible tells us that when Jesus ascended, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. How many of you have read that verse before? And they say, well, how can you Adventists say that Jesus began his ministry in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary, and then he entered into the second compartment in 1844 at the end of the 2300 days to appear before his Father? If the Bible tells us that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. So how do we answer that? Does anybody have an answer for that? Yes. Yeah, there was a throne in both rooms. Ah, very good. Oh, very good. Sort of a portable throne? All right. Now, when you look at the earthly sanctuary, yes. She said there are two thrones. There is a throne in the first compartment, and there is a throne in the second compartment. But we want to make sure that we have good biblical evidence for that. Matter of fact, I agree with you, but I think we need to have a good reason for that. So let's go back to the earthly sanctuary. Is there a courtyard in the heavenly sanctuary? A courtyard? No. How do we know there's no courtyard in the heavenly sanctuary? What happened in the courtyard of the earthly sanctuary? 
That's where the sacrifice was. Where did Jesus die for our sins? On the earth, right? So in the heavenly sanctuary, there is the holy and the most holy place. What are the three articles of furniture that we find in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary? All right, so when you go in the door, imagine in your mind's eye, you're going into the sanctuary. What would you see to the right? Table of showbread. What would you see to the left? Seven branch candlesticks. What's right in front of you? An altar of incense. Then you have the veil. And what's behind the veil? The Ark of the Covenant. Now, out of those four articles of furniture, which had a flat lid kind of surface? The Ark, clearly. And we call that what? The mercy seat. What do we call it? What do you do on a seat? You sit. So that would indicate that that would be a symbol of the throne, the mercy seat. But is there another flat surface in the first compartment? Okay, the altar of incense had the horns on that. But what about the table of showbread? And how many piles of bread were on the table of showbread? There were 12 loaves, but how were they placed? Two sets side by side. Now here's an interesting little point. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, had a crown running around it. And the table of showbread had a crown running around it. It's also interesting that there were two piles of bread. The Bible says that Jesus ascended up and he was seated at the right hand of the Father. So Christ was seated on the Father's throne. Now Revelation chapter 4 in describing the heavenly throne room, says that there were seven burning lamps of fire directly in front of the throne. There's a big clue right there. In the earthly sanctuary, what was directly across from the seven burning lamps of fire? Table of showbread. You understand? So the table of showbread symbolizes the throne in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus, when he began his priesthood, ascended up on high and was seated at the right hand of the Father. And we agree, absolutely. Jesus didn't wait to enter into the presence of the Father until 1844. But the Father was there in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary. And you can read in Revelation chapter 4, God the Father is seated upon the throne. There are the seven burning lamps of fire right in front of the throne. And then in chapter 5, Jesus comes in. And he appears as a lamb, as it had been slain. That's what happens when Jesus ascends up after the resurrection. And he takes the scroll, sealed with seven seals, from the hand of his father. And as those seals are broken, then you have the history of the Christian era. Beginning with the time of Christ and the ascension all the way through to our time. Does that make sense with everybody? Now in Daniel chapter 7, very important passage as well. You have a description of the pre-Advent judgment. And it talks about one like the Ancient of Days was seated. That's God the Father. And the books were opened. Then it says, one like unto the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and he came to the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father. So what's described in Daniel chapter 7 is God the Father moving from the Holy to the most holy place. And he's seated. The books are open. The pre-advent judgment is about to begin. And then Jesus is escorted by the angels from the holy into the most holy place. That's where Jesus is now. Ministering on our behalf. This pre-advent or investigative judgment. 
soon to end, and then Jesus comes again. So if you parallel Revelation chapter 4 and 5 with Daniel chapter 7, talking about the pre-advent judgment, you reach the conclusion that the Father and the Son were in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary. At the end of the 2300 days, the Father entered into the second compartment, and then Jesus followed the Father in. Does that make sense with everybody? I know we're covering a lot of space. I saw a hand. Yes. Oh, you got it. Thank you so much. Page what? They're handy, huh? You looked it up. So tell us again. Page 834, paragraph 1. It goes on with the description. So there's the description of Christ ascending up to heaven. It talks about the representatives of the unfallen world. She doesn't use the word 24 elders. She says the representatives of the unfallen world, they are waiting for Jesus. Jesus is ascending and in his train, meaning behind him, are those who are resurrected at the time of his resurrection. So if you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, the 24 elders would be the representatives of the unfallen world. Yes. Absolutely. How many piles of bread were there? And where was Christ seated? At the right hand of the Father. So the two stacks of bread can represent the Father, the Son. The table of showbread represents the throne in the first compartment. The seven burning lamps represents the seven spirits of God that you read about in Revelation chapter 4. Now let me just mention one other thing that came to mind. Um, where it talks about the 24 elders. Yes, go ahead. Those resurrected? Those resurrected because in another spot, she, or in that same spot, she also mentions, and I don't, I don't have yeah. a reference, but she mentions that they were slain of, uh, that before God. So I would, I would have mentioned like Seth, um, Abel, uh, you know. Yeah. Isaiah. So some of those, who, who, they could very well be part of the group that was resurrected. Because now. Yes. You can't be judged by somebody that never went through. Sure, sure. And we know that the Adventists are, or the redeemed, I should say, during the 1,000 years, they're going to play a part in judging. They're going to live and reign with Christ. Um, so the 24 elders, some have suggested that could be that group. And another suggestion that's given is in Revelation chapter 4, in Revelation chapter 5, the 24 elders, now bear with me, and the four living creatures worship God and say, Worthy are you to receive praise and glory and honor, for you have redeemed us and made us first fruits. So some people say, Wait a minute. How can the 24 elders be the representatives of the unfallen worlds? After all, they've never sinned, right? But then the next question is, Who else is saying that? The four living creatures. Were the four living creatures redeemed? No. Let me give you the answer to that. In the King James and the New King James translations, translated from the Texas Receptus, uh, Erasmus, who actually compiled the Texas Receptus, which is the Greek translation of the New Testament, when it came to that portion of the book of Revelation, he didn't have access or easy access to the original Greek manuscripts just for that portion. This is all documented. So he used the Latin Vulgate specifically for that section. If you look in your margin, 
dealing with Revelation chapter 4 and 5 where the four living creatures and the 24 elders say, you have redeemed us. A better translation in the margin is you have redeemed them and have made them kings and priests. And all of the newer translations use the word them. Now, I like the Texas Receptus. I use the King James and the New King James. But when it came to the translation or the comp compilation of the Greek text, he did use the Latin Vulgate. So there is enough evidence to suggest that the wording, more accurate to the original or to the later manuscripts that have been found, is you have redeemed them versus you have redeemed us. Well, then that answered the question, well, could the 24 elders be representatives of unfallen worlds? Yeah, they could. Because the angels say you have redeemed them. And of course, God has redeemed us through the sacrifice of Jesus. Anyway, I just wanted to add that little piece because somebody will read that in Revelation 4 and say, well, wait a minute, it says you redeemed us. Well, there's a little bit of an explanation on, on the us. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, let me keep going here with the 24, or rather 144,000. So you have this picture in Revelation chapter 14, verse 3. They sing the song before the four living creatures and the elders. Nobody could learn that song except the 144,000. Now, what is the song? It's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Why is it that only the 144,000 can sing that song? When you think of the song of Moses, is there a song of Moses in the Bible? There is a song of Moses. Now, um, it's actually given in Deuteronomy. It's more of a sermon format that Moses gives. But in that story or that sermon, that song of Moses, he recounts God's deliverance of Israel specifically through the Red Sea. And you'll recall that when God delivered Israel through the Red Sea, after that great deliverance, they sang. Remember the song of celebration? They sang praises to God because God has delivered them. Now, will the 144,000 have a similar experience to the children of Israel when they were standing on the banks of the Red Sea and the Egyptians were coming on behind them? Well, yes. Where could the children of Israel flee? Could they flee anywhere when they were standing by the Red Sea? There were mountains to the one side, mountains to the other, the sea before them. And who was coming behind them? The Egyptians, the enemy was coming behind them. So they had to depend completely upon God for deliverance. And in the last moment, God comes to the rescue of his people. He opens up the Red Sea and his people are delivered and the enemies of God's people are destroyed. You know, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 13 that just before Jesus comes... There is a death decree that will be passed against God's people. They won't be able to deliver themselves. They won't be able to run and hide. They will have to trust fully on God to take care of them. And just like we learned from the story of the Red Sea, the last minute God opens up not a sea, but He opens up the sky. And He comes to deliver His people and take them home. And what happens to the enemy of God's people when Jesus comes a second time? They are destroyed, just like the Egyptians who were destroyed in the sea. Does that make sense? So that's the song of Moses. What about the song of the Lamb? Do we have an experience where Jesus cried out and he had to depend fully upon the Father for deliverance? I think of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, Father, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Where it talks about Jesus being separated from the Father. The Father's presence being withdrawn because of sin. And Jesus had to trust himself fully to the promises of the Father. Holding on. 
Will the people at the end of time who are alive when Jesus comes, will they go through a time of trouble where their faith will be tested as was Christ's faith tested? And they will have to cry out like Jesus did, not my will be done, but thy will be done. We call that Jacob's time of trouble. So the song that the 144,000 sing, those who are redeemed when Jesus comes the second time, the reason they're the only ones that can sing it because their experience parallels the experience of Israel in their deliverance through the Red Sea and the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Full surrender to the will of God. Yes. Deliverance. Absolutely. And praise. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, when Israel made it through the Red Sea, did they sing praises to God for deliverance? Yes. Did Jesus praise the Father for deliverance? Absolutely. When he rose from the dead. And of course, praises the Father. Faith is being triumphant. So that's the Song of Moses and the Lamb. And there's probably a lot of additional details you can study out about that Song of Moses and the Lamb, but that's just a quick overview of that. All right, now we get to verse 14. We're getting, getting to some of the deepest stuff here, all right? All of that was just an introduction, by the way. <laughs> all right, here we go. Verse 4. These are the ones who were not defiled with woman, for they are virgins. These are the ones that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. All right, here's a lot in this verse. First of all, it says, These are the ones who were not defiled with woman. Now, what is the woman representing Bible prophecy? It represents the church. How many women are described in the book of Revelation? Two. Two. The one has daughters, however. The first is described in Revelation chapter 12. She's clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet. And she has a crown of 12 stars. Who does that woman represent? It represents the pure church or the true church. It represents the church throughout the whole uh, Christian era. From the time of Christ all the way in verse 17, talking about the remnant of our seed, keeping the commandments of God and having the testimony of Jesus. That brings us right up to our time. So that's God's true church, Revelation chapter 12. But there is another woman described in Revelation chapter 17, and her name is Babylon. And on her forehead is written the name Babylon, the what? The mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. So you have the woman of Revelation chapter 12 representing the true church. Then you have a woman in Revelation 17 representing an apostate church or a church that has fallen from the truths of God's word. It's also interesting to note that not only is there the mother church, but there are also the daughter churches. Now you need to think about this. Who does the mother church represent? The papal power, Rome. Who would the daughter churches represent? Those Protestant churches that are holding to the traditions and the teachings of the mother church. Are there Protestant churches today that are choosing man-made tradition above the commandments of God? And what authority do they base that on? The teachings of the mother church. Are you with me? Not the teachings of the word. So the mother church would represent... Rome, the daughter churches would represent those churches, those Protestant churches, that are setting aside the teachings of the Bible to follow man-made tradition. Now, next question. 
According to the second angel's message in Revelation chapter 14, how many times does Babylon fall? It says Babylon is fallen is fallen. The question is why does Babylon fall twice? And when did the first fall happen? And when does the second fall happen? Oh, I heard something here. All right. So if the mother church represents the papal power or Rome, according to a time prophecy, we call it the 1260 years, 538 till 1798, you have the falling of the mother. Now, when, let me go back and give you a little bit of a background. In the Bible, we find certain prophetic time periods. These are probationary time periods. At the end of a probationary time period, there is a falling of one group and there is a calling out of another group. Are you with me? Let's see some examples. There was the 120-year prophecy prior to the flood. Where we read in Genesis, God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man, but his day shall be 120 years. It took 120 years for the building of the ark. That marked the end of a probationary time period that had been given to the people living before the flood. So at the end of that probationary time period, was there a judgment that came upon the antediluvian world? Yes. yes, in the flood. But was there a remnant that was called out? Yes, and they ended up being in the ark, right? Noah and his family. Now we have another time prophecy in the Bible, and that we call that the 400 years, where God said to Abraham, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years, and then I'll bring them out. At the end of that 400-year probationary time period that had been given to the nations of Cana as well as Egypt, was there a judgment that came upon the Egyptians at the end of that time period? Yes, what do we call it? The seven, or rather the ten plagues. But was there a remnant that was called out? Yes, the nation of Israel. So we see this pattern established. We find a 70-year probationary time period where the Israelites were taken captive and they were in Babylon. At the end of those 70 years of Babylonian captivity, was there a judgment that came upon Babylon? Yes, by Cyrus, the Medo-Persian Empire. And was there a remnant of the Jews called out who went to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? Absolutely. Are you still following me? At the end of the 490-year time period that you read about in Daniel 9, that begins with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And you have the 70 weeks or 490 years, which ends in 34 AD. And I'm giving you a lot of information here, but I hope you have a background. 457 to 34 AD, that was the probationary time period that God had given to the Jewish nation as a whole. At the end of that probationary time period, was there a calling out of a remnant from Israel? Yes, we refer to that as the Christian church. Was there a judgment that came upon Jerusalem after 34 AD? Yes, what happened in 70 AD? Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. So do you see the pattern that's established? It's very clear. Now we have two other significant time periods for Bible prophecy. The 1260 year time period and the 2300 year time period. The 1260 begins in 538 with a decree uh, establishing the Bishop of Rome as sovereign over all of the churches. And it ends in 1798. Was there a judgment that came upon Rome, the Church of Rome, in 1798? 
Yes, Berthier, Napoleon's general, marched into Rome, proclaimed the political rule of the papacy at Nantes. The Pope was taken prisoner and he died in France. So a judgment comes at the end of that time period. But just before the end of that time period, was God calling a remnant to come out of Rome? Absolutely. You have, what do we call that remnant that came out? The Protestant Reformation. And they came out. Now, the 2300 days. This way it gets interesting. At the end of the 2300 days, when did the 2300 days end? What's the date? 1844. Was there a special message that God sent primarily to the Protestant denominations, a calling out, asking people to stand on biblical truth, but by and large, those Protestant denominations reject the message that came through William Miller and his associates. Did that happen in 1844? Absolutely. And all God could do when those churches rejected the message was to call out a remnant. And that's why the Seventh-day Adventist church is here today. So the first fall of Babylon represents Rome, 1798. The second fall of Babylon represents those Protestant churches rejecting the message of prophecy that came in the early 1800s. And all God could do was call out a remnant. That's the second fall of Babylon. Does that make sense to everybody? You understand that? So the first fall is the mother church. The second fall is the daughter churches. Well, some say, you know, the Adventist church is Babylon. I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Go back and read. How many times does Babylon fall? Two. They both happened already. The mother church fell. The daughter churches have fallen. There'll be a purifying. There'll be a shaking. But according to Scripture, God's people are going to go through. Does that make sense? All right, so the church is not Babylon. Not according to Bible prophecy. Babylon's already fallen once. Babylon has already fallen a second time back in the 1800s. Does that make sense with everybody? Okay, so Revelation 4 says, these are the ones who are not defiled with woman. Who would be the woman then in that context? Those false churches, right? Represented by the mother church, represented by the daughter churches, those who are holding to the traditions of the mother church. So here are a group of people. Oh, by the way, one other quick thought on that. What does Babylon hold in her hand in Revelation 17? A cup. And what's in the cup? Wine. It's intoxicating wine. Because it says all nations were made drunk with the wine of a fornication. That wine symbolizes not only the church looking to the state to enforce her teachings and decrees, but it also represents her false doctrine. So those Protestant churches who are clinging to the false doctrines of the mother church, they're guilty. So here is a group of people at the end of time who are not going along with popular tradition but they are standing upon the teachings of the Bible. They say to the Bible and the Bible alone, to the law and the, to the testimony. That's what they are standing on. In that sense, they are not defiled with woman. Does that make sense with everybody? I saw a hand somewhere over here. Nope. Okay, we'll keep going. The next part says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You know, if we're planning to follow the Lamb in heaven, we best start following the Lamb on earth. Amen. By following Jesus here, we guarantee to have the privilege of following Jesus in the world to come. Yes. Which one? They are true to God. They are faithful to God. They appear to God. Well, 
We need to understand the, is there anybody who's never fallen? Is there anyone who is not in need of God's grace and mercy? Absolutely. But when they receive, Well, they were still in need, sure, but they were still in need of redemption. Still in need of purifying. Well, that, that's a good point. I, I think in the broader sense, when we're faithful to Jesus and we are clothed in His righteousness and we're His bride, we are presented as a virgin, pure and holy and undefiled. We know that a good part of those who are going to be faithful at the end of time aren't even members of the church just yet. But they're still in Babylon and God's going to call them to come out. That's why you have the fourth angel in Revelation chapter 18. Does that make sense? Because remember, just being born in a particular denomination does not mean that you're faithful to God. I was born and raised in Adventist. I'm very grateful for that. But just because I was born an Adventist that doesn't mean I don't need my own conversion experience or some of my ideas need to be brought back in harmony with the teachings of the Bible. Does that make sense? So anyone who is faithful to Jesus at the end, they're viewed as pure, true. Now if they're still holding onto those false doctrines when they know better, well then they're not described as a virgin. All right? They're buying into the lies of Babylon. I saw another hand here. Yes, over there and then there. Go ahead. Right. That carries with it. You know, the good news is when we receive Jesus and we are true to Him and true to His commandments, we stand before Jesus, just, or God the Father, just as if we have never sinned. Pure, holy, undefiled. And that's the glory of God. He'll take a church that's got blemishes, but a church willing to be cleansed will be presented complete, without fault before the Father, with exceeding joy, as Jude puts it. Yes. Yes. Our earthly birth. Right. Everyone must be born again, as Jesus puts it. Yes. That's right. There is a degree of maturity that's emphasized in this verse. And we're going to get to that more when you get to chapter 7. It really brings it to light. And we'll talk about that a little later on. Okay. Now look at the next part of the verse here. And this is where it gets fascinating. These are the ones who were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, the 144,000, now you might be wondering, well, what about the number? Is it a literal number? Should we get to that right away, or should we wait on that one? I'll give the answer that Ellen White gives. She says, don't worry about that. Just make sure that you're part of that group. <laughs> I think that's a good answer, all right? God's not got a big counter up there and he's counting and he says, wow, man, I've got two people and both of them are trying to do the right thing. But this person is a little more holier than this person. So I'm going to include him as part of the 144,000. I'm sorry, 
you don't make it, you're not part of the 144,000. Now, of course, if you look in Revelation 7, we're going to get to that. It's 12,000 from each of the tribes, and there's great significance to the order in which the tribes are given and what that signifies, what that means. The number 12 in the Bible is always associated with the church. It's God's number. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 144,000. So if it ends up being literally 144,000, it could very well be. But I don't want you to get the impression that it's sort of a competition and God is counting. And if he's got his 144,000 made up, he's going to say, I'm sorry, I, I can't bring you in because you're not good enough. Because then we start doing the math, human tendency. We start looking around the church and we start doing some counting. <laughs> and we think, oh man, there's at least 50 people ahead of me. <laughs> and then you extrapolate that with 18 million around the world. And you go, there's just no chance of being, being saved. I might as well give up right now, all right? And God doesn't want any of us to give up. God is in the business of saving people. And if we are surrendering our hearts to Jesus and trusting in Him moment by moment, He will carry us through. We can take Him at His word. Now, if that means at the end only 144,000, well, that's up to God, right? You just be faithful to Jesus and don't worry about the rest. Be true to His word. And God will carry you through. Anyway, that's what I have to say about the 144,000, all right? Because I know there's quotes on both sides that people will use in different scripture. But I want to encourage you, just be faithful to Jesus. And follow Ellen White's advice. Don't worry about the makeup of the 144,000. Just strive to be amongst them. Just be faithful to Jesus, and that's the most important part. Okay, so here it talks about those who were redeemed from among men. So here is a group of people who will be translated to heaven without seeing death. Can you think of some other individuals who were taken to heaven without seeing death? Enoch, of course, the first, taken without seeing death. Who was another one? Elijah is taken to heaven without seeing death. Anybody else that you know of? 144,000. That's it. Now, of course, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was glorified, you had two people stand, one on each side. Who were they? Moses and Elijah. Who does Moses represent? Represents those who are resurrected at the second coming of Jesus. What happened to Moses? He died, and according to the book of Job, Christ resurrected him, took him to heaven. So he got to see the heavenly Canaan, not so much the earthly, but he got to see the heavenly Canaan, and he came down and appeared with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah, on the other hand, represents those who are taken to heaven without seeing death. So two groups of people. Oh, incidentally, there's one additional point. Who does Moses represent as far as the scriptures go? What part of the Old Testament? The Old Testament's divided into two parts, the law and the testimony. Which part of the Old Testament does Moses represent? The law, the first five books written by Moses were often referred to as the law. The testimony would represent the prophets. And which of the prophets in particular represent the testimony? Elijah. So Moses and Elijah. By the way, they're the two witnesses. That's the two edges of the sword, the law and the testimony. It's not the Old and the New Testament. The New Testament is just a continuation of the prophets. But the two principal witnesses is the law, first five books, and the testimony, the prophets. If they speak not according to this, there is how much light in them? There is no light in them. Now there's something else interesting in the Bible. In the mouth of two or how many witnesses? Three, every word shall be established. So when we are looking for truth, we need to find it in the law, 
the first five books, and we need to find it in the prophets. That's the two witnesses. But who do you suppose the third witness would be? Who appeared with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus himself. So in the mouth of two, the law and the prophets, and three, Jesus, every word shall be established. So if we look in the law and we see a teaching, and we see that teaching in the prophets, and we see that teaching in the life of Jesus, there's no question. You see the Sabbath in the law. You see the Sabbath taught by the prophets. And you see the Sabbath in the life of Jesus. There's no question about the Sabbath. Does that make sense? To the Lord, to the testimony, and you got the third witness, which is Jesus. Now, talking about this group of people who were redeemed from the earth, you have Enoch and Elijah. Now, why was Enoch translated? We know why Elijah was translated. He represents those who are uh, translated at the second coming of Christ. But why was Enoch translated? Because you're so close to God. He just stepped into heaven one day. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. It's interesting to note. There's a reason for why Elijah's translated. But it seems like when it comes to Enoch, I'm sure there is a reason. But it seems that God just didn't want to wait for another 5,000 years before taking Enoch to heaven, whatever it was. And God said, Enoch, you're so close. You're so close walking with me. Just come on home. And Enoch goes to heaven. Of course, Enoch was a big encouragement for those who were remaining faithful to God before the flood. There was hope. Yes, there is a promise. There is a heaven. There is something to press towards. So yes, there was a reason for why it's translated. But there's also, I think, God just wanted to, his friend to come to heaven right away. So Moses is resurrected and Elijah is taken. Now, how does the redeemed represent the first fruits to God and to the Lamb? What are first fruits? Back in Old Testament times, when were the first fruits, or what were the first fruits used for? Okay, and what did they do with that? They took them as an offering before God, right? And what did that mean? First of all, it was a recognition that the whole harvest came from God. And so the first of the harvest, that which has matured the earliest, is presented back as a special gift. That which has matured the earliest, the first fruits. Now, everybody that's going to be resurrected when Jesus comes again the second time, would all of them have perfected Christian character before they die and before the resurrection? No. There'll be those who have died in faith who have confessed their sins, they will be resurrected when Jesus comes again. But their lives have not fully reflected the character of Christ. Given enough time, it would. Because sanctification is the work of a lifetime. There is growth involved. But here's the point. Before Jesus comes, what has to happen in heaven prior to the second coming of Christ? And this makes us a little nervous sometimes as Adventists. Judgment of the living. Judgment of the living. What happens after that? When Jesus stands up, what does he say? He says, those who are holy, let them be holy still. Those who are filthy, let them be filthy still. 
And what do we call that event when Jesus says those words? The close of probation. The intercessory work of Jesus comes to an end. Now when that time comes, will there be people still living on the earth? And if Christ's intercessory work is finished, those who are His on the earth, will they be transformed by the grace of Jesus where they fully reflect the character of God and they have no longer need for the intercessory work of Jesus? Yes. yes. Otherwise, the work of probation can close. Are you all with me? So before Jesus comes, there will be a group of people living upon the earth who fully reflect His character of love. Now there are many verses that support this. Revelation chapter 18 talks about the fourth angel that comes down and the earth is illuminated with his glory. And he cries with a loud voice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, has become the habitation of devils, the hold of every foul spirit, the cage of every unclean and hated bird, and a voice is heard from heaven, come out of her, my people. So before Jesus comes with the loud cry and the latter rain, there is a ripening of God's people before probation closes. Now, Will we ever feel perfect? Will we ever be able to trust to our feelings? Never. Matter of fact, if you start feeling that you don't need Jesus any longer, you're in big trouble, right? That's a sign that something else is, is wrong. Even after probation closes, will the redeemed still be earnest and fervent in prayer? Absolutely. Will they still need Jesus' grace to sustain them? Absolutely. They'll be fully trusting to Christ. But will there be sins in their life that they have not confessed and forsaken? No. They have confessed all their sins to Jesus. And by God's grace, they have turned away from their sins. They will be sealed. Matter of fact, Revelation 7 talks about the sealing. So we'll get to what that is in just a minute. So the first fruits, in essence, at the resurrection... You've got all of these people who are resurrected and taken to heaven. And the onlooking universe might say, well, I don't know. You know, when that person died, he didn't know about the fourth commandment. But he loved Jesus. And now he's been taken to heaven. And this person wasn't clear on the health message when they died, but they loved Jesus and they're in the resurrection. Are there going to be people in heaven that didn't follow the health message? Are there going to be people in heaven that didn't keep the seventh day Sabbath? Because they didn't know, of course. They're going to be redeemed. And there might be people in the universe saying, I don't know, Lord. Are, are these people safe to bring to heaven? And God is going to be able to point to the 144,000, to the redeemed, and say, this is what my grace can do. And given enough time, they would be where this group is. Does that make sense? The first fruits, if the first fruit is good, that means the rest of the fruit that's not ripe yet will be good given enough time. Are you all with me? Yes. So the 144,000 are the first fruits in the sense of this is what God's grace can do. Now, next question. Has there been people throughout history who have fully reflected the character of Jesus? Absolutely. The martyrs who gave their life for Christ fully reflected his love. You've got people like Daniel. You've got people like Joseph in the Bible who fully reflected the character of Jesus. You've got the early Christian church that did an incredible job in reflecting the character of Jesus. 
But as a corporate group, a group of people at the end of time, this group is going to be somewhat unique. They're going to be fully surrendered to Jesus. Does that make sense with everybody? And they can be put forth as first fruits. This is what God's grace can do. And it amazes me. God waits until the very end. When the earth is dark with the misapprehension concerning the character of God. And then God does a miraculous miracle. And transforms a group of people to fully reflect his character. I don't know about you, but I want to be amongst those people saying, Lord, transform me. Amen? Amen. It's not our works. We're not saved by own works. We are saved by the grace of Christ. That's what Jesus can do within the life of somebody who is fully surrendered to him. We've seen it throughout history. Faithful men and women who have been so surrendered to Christ, his character was fully revealed. Now at the end of time, Christ is going to reveal his character through his church. And they're going to be presented as first fruits. Does that make sense with everybody? You understand what those first fruits is all about? It's not the first fruits from the grave. Because they're not resurrected. It's the first fruits of the redeemed in that sense. Okay, moving on. Verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit or no guile, for they are faultless before the throne of God. So here is a group of people who have been faithful in their witness, faithful in their life. There is found no deceit. Now, if you read the note there on page 46, it says the form of the Greek verb suggests that at a certain time of investigation, the 144,000 are found to be faultless. It doesn't mean that they've always been faultless. But at a particular point in time, they are found to be completely surrendered to Christ. When is that particular point in time? When Michael stands up. Daniel chapter 12. Revelation 22, he that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Then Jesus comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. When Jesus ceases his high priestly ministry for us, he removes his priestly robe and he puts on his kingly robe and he comes back not as a priest, not as a sacrifice, that was on the earth, not as a priest, that's what he's doing now, but he's coming back as a King, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming to receive his kingdom. He's coming to receive his bride. And of course, after probation closes, what's going to happen here on this earth? What happens after the close of probation before Jesus comes? You have the what? Time of trouble. And what's that? Revelation chapter 8 and 9 talk about the seven last... Actually, it's chapter 15. The seven last plagues. Uh, how many plagues are there? And why are they called the seven last plagues? Well, because it's the end, right? But how many plagues came upon Egypt? You wonder why there's only seven at the end and not ten? Because maybe everyone will be destroyed? Let me ask you this. How many of the ten plagues that came upon Egypt affected both the Egyptians and the Israelites? The first three was experienced by the Egyptians and the Israelites. Now the first three was a trial or a testing of the faith of the Israelites and a test of their obedience. But the last seven of the plagues that fell upon Egypt only came on the Egyptians, only came on the wicked. So how many plagues at the end of time? Seven. Who do the plagues come upon? The wicked. Why? Because the righteous have been sealed. Does that make sense? That's why it's the seven last plagues. The last of what? Well, of the ten, but 
The seven, specifically for the wicked, the righteous are protected during that time. That's why you have that wonderful promise in Psalm 91. Because you have made the Lord, which is my... Uh, well, how's the going? Because you have made the Most High, uh, thy habitation. High refuge. There you go. No evil shall befall thee. Only with your eyes you'll see the reward of the who? Of the wicked. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand. But it shall not come nigh thee. Nor shall any plague come near thy dwelling. And Ellen White has said that psalm in particular is going to be precious to God's people when that time comes. God is going to take care of us. He's going to protect us. So you have the close of probation. You have the seven last plagues. Then Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. So God will have a group of people before Jesus comes who fully reflect his character. I want to be amongst that group. What about you? Amen? All right. Any questions on the first five verses of Revelation 14 that we've looked at or anything else related to the 144,000? Now, we didn't get to chapter 7. We didn't get into the ceiling. We'll do that tomorrow. Is that okay? We'll look at Revelation chapter 7. We'll look at the great multitude. We'll look at the 12 tribes and what that all means. This is sort of laying the foundation of that. Any questions before we close? Yes. Yes. Yeah. They do. Now, of course, some have suggested that maybe that refers to only the redeemed having crowns. But we do have other references where kings or royalty have crowns. Not virtue, virtue of the fact that they have overcome, but rather virtue of the fact that they are royalty. So some have said, well, the 24 elders, yes, they can have crowns if they are the sons of God. That's described in the book of Job as being the representatives of these unfallen worlds, just as Adam was the representative of earth, but he fell. And that's why Satan showed up and said, hey, I'm the representative of earth. And that's why Jesus is called the second Adam, because he took the place. And that's why the devil was cast down. You read about him in Revelation chapter 12 at the cross. So that's another... Again, I'll go either way, but I would say, take a look at what Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, where she describes the ascension of Jesus. It's a very interesting picture that parallels the Revelation chapter 4. You're going to add to that. Well, one more thing is that chapter 2 of Revelation describes those that got the crown. Yes. Again, they overcome. And of course, the redeemed will have crowns in heaven. No doubt about that. So I, just I don't know the exact word, and it would be interesting if somebody wants to do a quick word search for us on crown. Maybe bring the answer tomorrow. But there's two crowns spoken of in Revelation. There is a crown of royalty, and there is a crown of victory. And it's two different Greek words. I wish I had it right at the top of my head, but I don't. The crown of victory was more like a wreath that was used in the Greek games. And then you have the crown of royalty, which kings would wear. And it would be interesting to see which crown that is. I know there's different words used throughout Revelation as it refers to the crown. So there's a little homework if you want to do that. You might find it interesting. Yes. Very good. All right, nobody knows the day or the hour when Jesus comes. Now, do we know that some things have to happen before Jesus comes? All right, we know there needs to be a Sunday law. 
We know that probation closes. We know the seven last plagues have to fall. I don't know if the second coming of Jesus, follow me now, is going to necessarily catch the Adventists of God. Because we know certain things need to come. We don't know the day or the hour. But what I think might very well catch many of us of God, if we're not careful, is the close of probation. Because there's no big sign that appears in heaven saying, countdown to the close of probation. It happens. And life goes on. So we need to be faithful to Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, probation is not closed. And we can say that on, on good, solid biblical evidence. Because we know there is a test to come to the whole world. The seal of God, the mark of the beast issue, that has not happened. We know probation doesn't close until that happens. But friends, we can't be waiting till the last minute, right? Saying, well, I've got some time, I've got some time, I'm going to wait till certain laws are passed, and I'm going to get my act together. No, if we can't live for Jesus now at a time of relative peace, how do we suppose you're going to live for Jesus when you can't buy or sell, right? So we can't postpone, we can't put off the work that should be done now. Yes. Yes. To me, it's interesting that those Adventists who, with Miller, weren't as, well, they just weren't quite as sure about what the cleansing of the sanctuary was on, 22, on October 22, 1844. There were a lot of those Millerites who realized that God didn't come to destroy sin or sinners, but to save sinners. Yes. I'm thinking of John 3, 16 and 17 and 1 John uh, 3, 1, 9, where, where God is here to save us. Absolutely. And those that had a grudge against sinners and those that disfellowship, Ellen White and many others. They got judged. Absolutely. They thought that God was going to destroy everyone. And of course, we're going to talk more about that because there's a prophecy in Revelation that talks specifically about 1844. Do you know where you'll find that prophecy? Anybody got a chapter that you can give me? Revelation chapter 10. Oh, you can't miss that. That'll be not tomorrow, the next day. We'll see if we get to it. We'll be looking at the sounding of the seventh trump in Revelation chapter 10 and 1844. One of my favorite studies. Yes. Yes. Even though we know how Christ is coming, I think it would be so spectacular and so well, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. people will be drawn out of the church. Absolutely. Oh, there's so much we can say. The Bible speaks about three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they go out into the world and perform signs and wonders and miracles to draw the whole world after the beast. That, I believe, is a fulfillment of what you're talking about. A counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I think it's beginning right now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think we have a, a, a false manifestation, a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. It's happening right now. Oh, we can say more if we want. All right, I think we're out of time.
Thank you, everybody. Let's just bow our heads as we close. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity for us to gather in freedom and to study this very important book, a message that I believe you have given to us, those living at the end of time. Father, we are also grateful to know that you are able to do a work within us, a work that we cannot do for ourselves, that, Father, you can save to the uttermost those who come unto you. Lord, give us faith to just take you at your word. Give us that strength to trust in you and to surrender our lives to you every day, moment by moment, so that you can do that work of cleansing in all of us. Father, we want to fully reflect our Jesus. We want to be a faithful ambassador for the one who saved us. So, Lord, till this end, we pray that you'd work within us. Bless our time here at camp meeting. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us again. We'll be back at 2 o'clock. I think all the books are gone. Is there anybody that would... I can probably get another box on Thursday. Would...